Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A special thank you to our sponsor, Equithrive. This one goes out to all the horses with the crusty necks, fleshy backs, and girthy middles. The horses who gain a few extra pounds simply by breathing air. The easy keepers on limited pastures. The folks at Equithrive know there is nothing easy about easy keepers. That's why they have formulated products just for you. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support, all in one easy to feed pellet. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com. I first met Travis Burns, who is a professor in chief of farrier services at Virginia Tech, in 2019 at the 30th annual Meters Farrier Appreciation Day. And he was giving a talk on white line disease. And it was one of those times where I just realized how much I didn't know about the horse's hoof. He did such an amazing job giving the presentation and discussing various treatments and causes that I reached out to him to see if he would talk to me on the podcast about this issue. The night that we recorded was nine o'clock at night after Travis had spent a long day with Dr. Rick Redden. So it was really cool that he was able to spare some time and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So why don't we just get started and you can tell us a little bit about how you got into hoof care and where you are now in your current interests. Sure. So I, I started in hoof care, obviously, when I was a, a child. My family runs a uh, trail guide service down in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and there. So my uncle ran it uh, with another uncle of mine and my father worked there as well. And so I grew up, they had, you know, 50, 60 horses at all times. And my two uncles and dad would kind of shoe those horses. And so I was very intrigued from a young age to watch that, see what's going on, tried to participate, be a part of it. And, you know, they eventually let me start to do some things like pull shoes, do that kind of thing. And I was just kind of hooked from that point. So I knew I always wanted to be a farrier. And then from there, I kind of took some weird turns. And so after high school, I went to college at the University of Tennessee. And there is where the first time I was exposed to somebody that came making a shoe and doing a dorsal hoof wall resection, the treat laminitis at a time and, you know, grinding shoes. It was just really cool and interesting. And so from there, I, I decided I talked to that farrier and went to a fair school in North Carolina to try to learn more because prior to that, I would just, you know, shoe our, the own, our horses at the, the trail riding thing. And from there, obviously I, I got exposed. There's a whole new world. And so I went to a fair school and there I was exposed to more and more um, things. And so different types of horses, different breeds, different disciplines, different shoes, that kind of thing. And then from there, I transferred actually to North Carolina State University in my home state of North Carolina. And uh, that's where I was first exposed to some AFA farriers. So I kind of stumbled upon AFA certification 
thought that was something I wanted to do. So I reached out to some farriers, um, one in particular, a guy named Andy Henderson. And so I reached out to him and he helped me, you know, develop my shoe board, go through that process. And so he kind of opened up a, a whole other world, like the, the competing, the shoemaking, that kind of thing and certification. And then while I was in Raleigh, I was an undergrad at, at NC State and I started doing some work for people in the area and obviously some technicians, some vets that worked at NC State's vet school. And at the time, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a vet or not. And so I tried to log some hours um, at the vet school. And so I got a job at the vet school working in large animal radiology of all things. And from there, they obviously knew I was a farrier and there's a vet fair team that worked there, um, Dr. Mansman and Kurt Von Ward. And so they would be there a day or two days a week uh, doing cases. And it was really cool to watch. I had a great supervisor that allowed me to participate in that, to watch, observe, learn everything I could while also still doing my job in radiology. And then it kind of grew from, from there. You know, they were out there two days a week. So it turned into, well, you know, hey, this horse has to have an MRI. Can you pull its shoes? And I'm like, sure. Well, this horse is going home. The ferry can't get there for two weeks. Can you just nail these back on? Well, sure. I mean, I'm here. So it kind of grew and grew and grew. And from there, I, uh, I kind of got involved in a in a case where it really needed a specific handmade shoe. It was a deep digital flexor tendon laceration about mid mid pastern. And the horse needed like a fishtail bar shoe, but I didn't have the ability to make it at the time. And so I like shaped up a machine made shoe, weld in an insert, put it all to all together. And, uh, you know, it worked well. It kept the horse from toe flipping. It was just a part of their entire treatment protocol. You know, they were taking care of the rest of the tenant, bandaging all of those things. And, uh, we met with a faculty member that Monday and, you know, you're obviously you're asking for feedback. And the one thing he told me is like, well, you know, the only thing to make this better is if it was a handmade shoe. And I mean, he just kind of said it, no big deal. It's not it's really nothing to him. But to me, it really bothered me that I didn't have the skill set to do that. And so I actually met with him later that week. And at that point, I knew I really just wanted to do like that kind of theory. And I really like to be in an academic setting. I really like to be in, in a veterinary teaching hospital. I really like to be surrounded by board specialists and uh, people that were just super interested in what they did. And so I met with him and asked him like, where could I go learn some more, do, do some other things. You know, I'd really like to advance my skill set, And eventually one day I'd like to be a farrier at a, at a university. And, um, that vet, he's like, well, you know, I know this guy up in Northern Virginia, his name's Paul Goodness. He's trained a lot of farriers and he only does therapeutic work. Like maybe you should give him a call and just chat with him and see if he would take you on. And so luckily I called Paul and they had started this internship program in his multi-farrier practice. And I was lucky enough to meet with him. I got to be the first intern. And so I moved two weeks later from Raleigh to Northern Virginia to work for him. And uh, we did obviously a lot of really high level performance horses, but a lot of therapeutic work. And one of the jobs that he had was um, that group practice was the the resident fairs for a facility called the Marion DuPont Scott Equine Medical Center in Leesburg, Virginia. And so he had a longstanding relationship with them, did all of their 
their therapeutic work and worked at that hospital two days a week. And ironically, it's a satellite hospital to the College of Veterinary Medicine uh, at Virginia Tech. And so when they decided to hire a farrier, Paul and some other people were very supportive of me applying and, you know, wanting to, to join that program with Dr. Pleasant and kind of build it from there. And so I applied for, for that job and was lucky enough to, to get it. And so I left Northern Virginia to move to Blacksburg, Virginia, to work for the College of Veterinary Medicine there 14 years ago. So wow, yeah, kind of a, kind of a weird path. And probably not the traditional one, but yeah, I mean, that's great. And obviously with all that experience, you've seen a lot of different kinds of pathology and hoof issues, which, um, I mean, that's kind of how I, I came across your name is I was like brand new in the, in the hoof care world. And I went to a meters supply day and, um, you were there teaching and, um, it was one of those times where I was kind of like slapped in the face with how much I didn't know, you know, (laughs) Um, sure, sure. <laughs> and it was just a really great talk. You had talked about um it was a, a discussion on white line disease. Um, so that was something that, you know, when I reached out to you, I was hoping that we could chat about that today, if that's all right with you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So uh first, can you just tell us what white line disease is and how a horse owner could identify it? Sure. So so white line disease is a, a term coined kind of in the 90s by, ironically, of that name, Dr. Rick Redden. And <laughs> it's a disease pathology that is characterized by a chronic progressive separation involving the non-pigmented medium of the hoof wall. And so it's caused by anaerobic microbes that are what we call keratinolytic or keratinopathogenic, meaning that they actually degrade the horse's hoof wall. And so it's almost like a self-exacerbating problem. So it kind of invades that portion of the hoof, and then it creates a separation as it breaks down portions of the, the hoof wall. Ultimately, in its most like advanced pathology, can actually make the distal phalanx unstable or the coffin bone unstable within the, within the hoof capsule. And I forget your, your second question was how could an owner recognize it? Yeah, or anyone really. Sure. So obviously, like most horses, you know, well, I shouldn't say most horses, but a lot of horses, at least in our region, the mid-Atlantic states, the East Coast, you know, white line disease is a big struggle. And so you're you're probably hard-pressed to find a horse that doesn't have, you know, a little bit of white line, white line disease or, or it in its mildest form. And so it can be characterized when you look at the bottom of a horse's foot, you know, just these little separations in the non-pigmented stratum medium of the hoof wall the bright white portion of the hoof wall, you'll see little places, little black tracks um, there. That is white line disease in its most um, kind of mild sense, but obviously it can continue to advance. And so what owners will notice is probably that the separation on the bottom, sometimes it can be characterized. You'll see these little cracks on the dorsal or outer surface of the hoof wall um, that are kind of, unresolved they just continue to progress little by little by little and that crack often occurs due to the separation of the hoof wall behind it you sometimes will see a soft white or gray powdery kind of matrix on the bottom of the horse's hoof so these little areas where the microbes have invaded and kind of degraded the keratin it's weak it's flaky it's kind of 
gray as a, a unique smell to it that I have a difficult time describing. But but really, if you pick out it, try to clean it out, you'll start to discover this little separation. And that's really what, what white line disease is, is that chronic progressive separation of the portion of hoof wall due to those microbes. Yeah. And I know a lot of times when owners see like a hoof wall separation in the actual white line or like a separation between the sole and the wall, they instantly jump to like, oh, this is, is this white line disease? But it's really that stratum medium, like the, the inner hoof wall that's affected and not that separation between the sole and the wall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it is kind of a misnomer. So the true, what we call the white line in, in North America is actually the junction between the hoof wall and the sole. So it's the portion of the hoof wall, which are the epidermal lamellae as you get to the dorsodistal margin or the tip of P3. So from that point down or distally towards the ground, that portion, it's epidermal lamellae, and they interdigitate with the sole. And so they create something called the white line, which is what Leah's, farriers, horse owners, everybody vets think about it as that's kind of the distinction between sensitive and insensitive structures. And so that structure itself extends upward or proximally, you know, however much sole depth the horse has. So 15, 20 millimeters, whatever it is. And then from that point, it turns into little Miller interface, which is ultimately the attachment of the horse's hoof wall and the distal phalanx or the bony column within the hoof. And so if you have dirt and debris and microbes that invade the white line itself and propagate or travel proximally or upwards uh, a centimeter and a half, two centimeters, you ultimately end up with usually a subsolar or a submural abscess. But there's an outer layer of the hoof wall, you know, well, if you just think about the hoof wall itself, it's three layers. So you have the stratum externum, which is the periopal, so just a, a thin little cellular layer that's designed to be kind of the waterproofing of the hoof, but it's usually abraded away by our footings, barriers, sanding sponges, hoof buffers, all of those things. So there's not much of it. But the bulk of the hoof wall is the pigmented stratum medium, which is what you see, whether it's a black foot or a white foot, you'll see a pigmented layer. And then there's a really bright white zone. And so that's the area, it's called the non-pigmented stratum medium. And it has less horn tubules. It has larger horn tubules. It's more moisture rich. So it's kind of a, a softer portion of the hoof. You know, the hoof, all those moisture gradients and the structural integrity of it is designed to dissipate shock, concussion, and prevent big fractures. And so that portion of the hoof wall is susceptible to these opportunistic microbes. And so those opportunistic microbes and grade or invade this moisture-rich portion of the hoof wall that has a lot of intratubular horn that they can essentially eat or use to nourish themselves and they can degrade it. And so that is true white line disease. It invades that, the non-pigmented stratum medium, and it can go from the ground surface or the bottom of the horse's foot all the way up to the cornet. And it is an, an insensitive structure. And so when we really talk about treatment of it, that's how you're able to treat it without invading any of the sensitive structures. Whereas the true white line is what we call the stratum internum or those epidermal lamellae interdigitating with the sole. And again, if microbes or dirt and debris invade that area, they travel proximally or up towards 
the sensitive structures and they actually result in an abscess. So the difference between white line disease and abscess really is the anatomical space or the area of the horse's foot in which those microbes invade. Yeah, no, that makes sense. A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. And, and I live in the East Coast, too. I live in very wet Massachusetts. Right now, it's been, like, raining most of the summer. So I totally understand your environment when you're saying that you just you see it on most horses. You just see these, even if it's in its mildest form. But, sure. you know, when it comes to risk factors, are there certain risk factors that might predispose a horse to getting white line disease or a correlation between things like, you know, metabolic status or diet or environment? Absolutely. I think, you know, so I, I said that line earlier, those are opportunistic microbes that invade the hoof and that can kind of be, you know, skipped over. Like that's not an important statement, but it, but it really is like those, the microbes that cause white line disease, they don't just invade nice, healthy, strong feet. They go after weak spots. And so those weak spots can be the result of, you know, a lot of different things. So the first one is obviously the mechanical factors. So horses with inferior or suboptimal conformations. So if you have a low heel, long toe, they can easily have excess stress and strain on the, the dorsal hoof wall or the toe region. So those microbes will often invade it. You can have horses that are, let's say, base narrow and they kind of overload the lateral side of, of their feet. Then those microbes are going to go after the lateral side of, of those feet. If you have the club foot or flexure limb deformity, meaning a contracture of the uh, coffin joint, then those feet are, again, they're going to have a lot of excess stress and strain on the toe region. So those microbes are going to invade those areas. So there's a lot of mechanical factors that put stresses and strains on portions of the hoof wall, and then those microbes go after those portions. Then there's obviously a lot of environmental factors like the wet, dry, wet, dry cyclical phenomena that we have on the East Coast. So even if it's not raining every day, we have high humidity. The feet are out. They're in a pasture overnight. There's a lot of humidity and dew. The feet get really, really wet overnight, early morning, and then they're bone dry by the end of the day. So there's this constant, you know, expansion and contraction, expansion and contraction of the horse's hoof wall. So those little microbes get trapped in there and they continue uh, to invade it. We do think there's probably some genetic component, which we're not entirely obviously sure what that is, but you can have horses that are maintained on the same property, the same environment, trimmed by the same farrier on the same schedule. Everything happens exactly the same. And one horse gets white line disease, but the other one doesn't. 
So there probably is some genetic predisposition to certain horses get it. Uh, we also typically have other environment effectors like certain farms just seem to be more predisposed to having horses with white line disease. So I don't know if that's just because those certain farms have a higher microbial content within the soil, or maybe it's farms that had sheep previously that had foot rot, or maybe cows that had foot rot or whatever. You know, it just seems that certain farms have a predisposition to suffer from white line disease. We can also have other mechanical factors like anatomical normalities or abnormalities, however you want to think about it. Uh, so horses that have a crena, for example, so it's a notch in the dorsodistal margin of the distal phalanx. Often bone has a little scoop taken out of it in the toe region. And so that area fills with indistinct keratinized tissue. And so that tissue is obviously predisposed to those opportunistic microbes. So that one's kind of characterized by the foot that often uh, you just has this small little crack at the toe that's about, you know, five to 10 millimeters in length, and it never gets any better. It never gets any worse. That's often attributed to the crena. Horses that have keratomas in their feet, you know, so a little benign tumor of the epidermal producing cells of the hoof um, in that particular area, they're predisposed to getting white line disease in that area. Even if they're surgically resected, that area is predisposed to white line disease. Horses that have had um, distal phalanx debridement, uh, meaning that somebody has gone in and performed a surgery to bride the coffin bone, whether that was from a puncture wound, a sequestrum, whatever, some infection of the, of the coffin bone, that tissue fills with this indistinct keratinized tissue that is very moisture rich, it's very immature, it uh, has large horn tubules, it's predisposed to getting white line disease, those little microbes invade it. So there's a lot of factors that predispose a, a horse or, or all equids to, to white line disease, and that's just some of them. Yeah, and, and I totally agree. I feel like I've seen a lot of that too. I mean, it, it probably makes sense that we're in similar environments, so, you know, what are some of the most common ways to treat white line disease? And what would you say, like in your experience, is one of the more or most effective ways? So, so in my experience, obviously, treatment has been kind of revolved around a lot of things. So first and foremost, if a horse has white line disease and those little microbes are traveling upwards up the hoof, as long as the foot is growing out faster than those microbes can travel upwards approximately, then you never have a problem. The foot will just grow it out. It's no big deal. But the problem occurs when you have those microbes are invading or traveling up the hoof proximally or upwards up the dorsal or outer surface of the horse's hoof faster than the hoof can regenerate or grow. And so when that happens, you have to treat or do something to stop it. And so there are a lot of topical treatments out on the market that are designed to treat white line disease from things like copper sulfate, chlorine dioxide solutions, formalin-based solutions, iodine-based solutions, all of those things are what we call antiseptic and astringent, like they're designed to kill those microbes and dry the horse's hoof. But for me, in my experience, the primary form of treatment is first and foremost to treat or address the predisposing factors. So get it off the environment that it's in, you know, 
try to trim or balance it to reduce the stresses and strains on the hoof wall from whatever disease pathology or conformational defect that the horse is struggling with, whatever. Try to treat the predisposing causes. And then from that point, I've had the best success with hoof wall resections. So literally removing the portion of the hoof that's undermined and exposing those tissues to first UV light and air. So the microbes that cause white line disease are what we call anaerobic. So meaning that they need to live an environment that uh, devoid of UV light and oxygen. So if you just open them up and expose them to UV light and oxygen, it kills the vast majority of those microbes. And so if you can debride or remove or resect portions of the hoof wall to what we call healthy appearing margins to your eye, and then use all of those topical treatments, whichever one you want to, whether it's the chlorine dioxides, the copper sulfates, the formalin, the iodines, whatever you want to use, treat those to kill the microbes that you just can't see with your naked eye. I've had great, great success with that. But a lot of people advocate for things like trying to pick out or clean the area of the separation and pack it with some antiseptic packing material. But in my experience, the microbes that you're after are the most proximal. So the, the ones that are the closest to the top of the horse's hoof. And so we rarely can ever get a horse's foot that clean. I mean, they live in dirty environments that are packed with a lot of dirt and debris and microbes. And so I think if you just debride and expose it to UV light and air, you have the most success. Because if you're just trying to clean the bottom of the horse's foot and pick out each one of those little separations and then treat it with some topical treatment, you don't get to the microbes that you really want to kill or the microbes that are, have advanced the most. And so I, I'm a big proponent or advocate for A, first treating the predisposing factor and then B, debriding the healthy appearing margins and then treating topically. I want to give a shout out to Grid As New Mud Control Grids. Where mud is a problem, mud control grids are a game changer. They instantly stop mud with little to no ground prep whatsoever, and they are perfect for anywhere that gets maybe just a little muddy or places where you're sinking in above your fetlocks. A turnout, around a feeding station, a water tub, your track system, or just a walkway, these grids make an instant huge difference in land and mud management. They're environmentally friendly all around, they're made from 100% recycled plastic, and they're recyclable, with a 20-year manufacturer's guarantee. They have over 21 million square feet installed over the past 20 years. Han Mud Control Grids and other products are now readily available in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts, only through Grid As New, mudcontrolgrids.com. We know that you'll love them as much as we do. So again, check out mudcontrolgrids.com. So this, I mean, I didn't, I didn't send you this question and this is more out of my own curiosities, but, um, have you seen any, any changes? Like you were talking about how, you know, as long as the foot is growing out faster than the microbes are kind of like eating away at the hoof wall, um, it, it's not that big of a problem cause it'll just grow out. Um, and I have had cases where I just grow, you know, the, the, with regular hoof care and, and, you know, good, just maintenance trimming, the white line disease just grows right out and the owners are like psyched. Sure. But have you seen anything where, like, you know, changing diet or nutrition helps in terms of 
either like getting the hoof to grow in healthier material or to, I mean, grow faster. And I know like Simon Curtis and 800 million other people will say that there's, you know, very little that can change the rate of hoof growth. I would love your opinion if you wanted to share it. Sure. So, so my opinion, I mean, I, I won't lie. I'm a little ignorant to it. Like I've, I've never really researched hoof quality and as it relates to nutrition. So some of the people like Doug Butler, Simon Curtis that have, have done some of those things are certainly more uh, qualified to speak to that topic than, than me. But in, in my experiences, like the hoof supplements that are out there on the market that are designed to grow either faster hoof or stronger, healthier hoof, they do appear to do that to certain horses, certain times. Yeah. And I haven't really anecdotally or at least clinically developed any sort of, you know, common thread there. And so what I, I tell clients, because obviously with white line disease, a lot of the clients ask what could they do to speed up hoof growth or improve the quality of the hoof. And I tell them, well, the supplements that are out there on the market, you know, they might help some horses some of the times. And so if you are going to feed it to the horse, your horse in this case, perhaps it may help. And if it does, it's only going to affect the new growth. And so really from the coronet down. And so if it takes a year to replace all the horse's hoof uh, for that, then you're committed to at least 12 or 18 months before you can objectively say, I think this helped my horse or it didn't. Right. And and so I think if you are going to try or feed any of those supplements, I mean, they're, they're probably worth it. Like, I mean, there's the sign to side of me that's just like, well, let's try it and see what happens. If it helps, great. If it doesn't, well, we're still in the same boat we were. Right. But if you're going to do it, you really need to commit to that type of long-term plan. If you just feed it for a month and then go, oh, this did nothing, then I mean, you didn't really give it a fair shot, just in general. Uh, but I, I have, like, clinically or anecdotally seen that some horses, when they go on these supplements or they change their feed, they get a better hay, a better grain, whatever they're eating, then they tend to grow a better, healthier foot that's not as susceptible to white Lyme disease. And same thing when you think about the diet thing. You know, I didn't talk about that earlier, but those feet, like the chronic lamnitic, the horses with metabolic issues like PPID, uh, insulin resistance, all those things that are growing these kind of chronic laminitic feet that have a lamellar wedge or that, again, indistinct keratinized tissue, all of that is predisposed um, to white line disease. And we certainly know when you have all of those endocrinopathies, if you're not managing those feet or those horses at an appropriate body condition score and appropriate nutrition, then the feet often suffer, and one of the things they suffer from is obviously laminitis, but also white line disease. And so having those horses, keeping them in that chronic state of obesity or uh, metabolic instability or insulin resistance or a period where they're hyperinsulinemic, that certainly degrades the horse's hoof, which does make them more susceptible to white line disease. So when I do think, when you think about a horse's metabolic state and its nutrition, it can absolutely affect its uh, susceptibility to white line disease from both ways. So whether it's you're giving him supplementation or it's an obese, overconditioned horse that does not have an appropriate metabolic status or is unfortunately suffering from a lot of endocrinopathies and it makes them more predisposed to white line disease. 
So I do think you would be remiss as a hoof care practitioner and owner, anybody that's responsible for a horse's hoof, not to look at their nutritional profile, their body condition score, and their metabolic state. Because um, I do think that can obviously make them more susceptible to white line disease from either of those two paths. Yeah, and I always say that some of the the worst quality feed I see are like the uncontrolled metabolic horses, where you know their yeah. their insulin or their ACTH are just like sky high, and their feet. I mean, obviously, like you worry about laminitis, but sometimes they just have like crummy feet. <laughs> yeah, so. no, I mean it's it's clearly been shown that insulin is toxic to horses feet and it you know obviously increases uh, the mitotic activity of those secondary uh well actually really that mitotic activity of the epidermal basal cells causing a stretching lengthening of the secondary epidermal lamellae ultimately resulting in a stretching of their basement membrane making their attachment weaker and again just creating more indistinct keratinized tissue that is weak, flaky, susceptible to these microbes, difficult to hold a nail, honestly susceptible or difficult to even attach with gluons. We, I think it's fairly readily acceptable that are accepted that insulin is toxic to a horse's feet from a laminitic standpoint, but also just a hoof quality standpoint. Yeah. For those uncontrolled metabolic horses or PPID or insulin resistant, all of those things, they have weaker feet for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that's the main list of questions I had. But the last one I, you know, wanted to ask was um, if you had any general advice for horse owners or farriers that are struggling with a case that you know might not be the one of those easy to grow out ones. My well, a my biggest advice I I would have two. The one I would certainly buy and breed horses based on their health confirmation. So, you know, just if you have that strong, robust, healthy foot, it doesn't matter where you put it. It's probably not going to be susceptible to white line disease. Great confirmation, all of those things. Like that horse is probably never going to have much of a problem with white line disease. It's the inferior confirmations. It's the mechanical deficits or defects that make those areas predisposed to white line disease. That's really, really the problem. So we should make sound decisions and buying and breeding our horses based on confirmation and hoof quality rather than breed, name, color, whatever it is you're choosing from, make those sound decisions. And then my next biggest advice would be to intervene or provide treatment. When you have that small pocket of white line disease, it's much easier to just go ahead and debride it right then, treat it with something that's antiseptic and astringent before it becomes a problem. So be far more proactive. Like I think we often have this hesitation as health care practitioners and even owners, or maybe it's because of owners, to avoid doing the small resections because it makes a defect or something that you see in the horse's hoof. Whereas if it's just from the bottom, you round up the outer hoof wall, chances are the owner doesn't even see it. But if you need to make a little notch that's half a centimeter by half a centimeter, then obviously the owner is going to see it. But I'd be far more active or proactive to try to treat them while they're small before they become bigger problems. And my, I don't know, just in my experience, when you look at it and you see that small separation, you're like, well, I think the foot will grow out faster than the microbes. Like it's already there. So just deprive it, pack it with something that's antiseptic 
and astringent, just go, just go ahead and treat it earlier. So I do think early intervention before it continues to progress would be my biz, biggest recommendation. And certainly I can be a little biased because I am at like a referral facility. Like I do still trim a lot of horses that are barefoot and a lot of what you would call quote unquote normal horses. And they do suffer from some mild white line disease, but most of the cases that I see with white line disease are pretty extravagant. They're at least halfway up the horse's hoof. They've already made the distal phalanx unstable with an health capsule. You know, major things have happened. And I often wonder, well, this didn't just happen overnight. So what if treatment or intervention would have happened 18 months ago or 12 months ago? Like, would we have gotten to this point where we had to do this massive reception and crazy treatment protocol? So I, I would advise people to be proactive, talk with owners, educate them, let them know what you're doing and why, and intervene or provide treatment much earlier. And then in those severe cases, I would certainly recommend going out, getting radiographs, getting input from the veterinary profession, and actually try to treat those as a vet barrier team. Yeah, absolutely. That all makes perfect sense. So awesome. Yeah, well, thank you so much for chatting with me tonight. I know that you've already had a really long day and, and this is just uh, tacked on at the end, but I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. Yeah. Happy and to do it. Thank you. Okay, right. wonderful. All right. Well, I know that uh, I've kept you up uh, kind of late, but I, I appreciate your time. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And have a great rest of your night. All right, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.